ahead, yeah. That's what Christ does. Oh, boy. Well, that song, those cardboard testimonies, that's, that's what it's all about. And I'm going to try to add to some of that. First, I want to tell you about story writing. Okay? When someone writes a story, there are certain elements usually included, you know, sections, if you will. And if you've had any writing experience, you probably know better than I do that for any story to be successful, these elements all need to be there. The idea is to create some sort of tension, and that reaches a climax, and then it goes on to a resolution or some kind of a conclusion. So if you're a writer and you understand these story writing elements, I want you to go ahead and feel free to grade me on this message called, This Is My Story. The Bible says something that I never really understood for a long time. For years, I never understood. And this is written to people who have crossed that line of faith and said yes to Jesus. You can lead my life. I believe in you and all that stuff. This is who it's written to. You have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. Well, the first part of any story is that initial setup, you know, the, the setting. It's known as the exposition. So here we go. Once upon a time, there was this shy, insecure, easily embarrassed boy who was so, so far removed from any form of boldness or confidence that he didn't even know that type of personality existed. Anything resembling confidence or boldness was viewed as arrogant or downright mean. That scared little boy is standing in front of you today. Now, there was no good explanation for me to feel this way. I had loving parents. I didn't grow up in poverty. I did okay in school. I had plenty of opportunities early on in life. And even though I didn't really think too much about this, there was some kind of emptiness there. I was lonely, unbelievably lonely, unbelievably insecure. Why? How was I ever going to reach this place in life where anything could be different? What would it take to move myself out of such a boring fear-filled existence. I actually had questions like that rolling around in my head. I didn't know where they came from, but they initiated a lifelong search. For many, many years, my life revolved around this search. That's a key word, search. I had no idea that there was a Bible verse that said this. God speaking, when you look for me, you will find me. When you wholeheartedly seek me, I will let you find me. Now, as we go on through the story, you may start to realize who was doing the seeking here. Was it David or was it God? Well, the next part of the story moves us 
forward to the, toward the climax. It's not the climax, but it gets us there. It's known as the rising action. All you people in school that are listening to this, you're going, why does he have to talk about all this? I hear this in school. Some stories don't take very long to reach their climax. When it comes to crossing the line of faith, the rising story, the rising action doesn't last too long. Many people tell about their days in Sunday school with Miss Jones, who was such a great form of godliness to them. Or they talk about Pastor Freddie, the student director, who could just explain Jesus in such a relevant way. Or maybe it was the mission trip for the college and career group that taught people to open their eyes to what it was like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. In those stories, the rising action moved them into the family of God relatively early in life. That's not my story. I could relate more to the example of D.L. Moody excitedly returning back to his church from a visit where he was sharing his faith. He was trying to help people cross that line of faith. And when he got back to the church, the people asked, Dr. Moody, how many did you get? He said, two and a half. They said, oh, two adults and one child. He said, oh, no, no, no. Two children and one adult. The adult has already wasted half of his life. That's who I could relate to. In fact, I've had to fight off the regret for wasting half of my life. Now, you've got to understand, that's my thoughts. That's my thinking. It's not God's. God didn't waste any of my life. It's not his fault. In fact, what helps me fight off those feelings of regret is this verse. The Lord says, I will give you back what you lost. Most translations are talking about crops and that kind of stuff. And they say, I'll give you back the years the locust ate. That's comforting. Because I let that locust eat a whole bunch of my life up. But God says, I'll give it back. He says, my people will never be disgraced. Okay, so back to my story. My mother was a uh, private, she taught in school for a while, and then most of her years she taught um, private music lessons. I say she was a teacher. I shouldn't say that. She's 87 years old now, and she's still doing it. She's amazing. So I started learning music when I was in her womb. You know, I'm sitting there in the tummy at the piano, her teaching somebody. I'm sure I got some of that in me. And she was so diligent about keeping my brother and I on track. She'd make us practice the piano and the organ every morning for school. Any normal child, that would have pushed them totally away from music. There's some of you out there, I bet. (laughs) Just, no, get me away from this. But instead, I always endearingly say this about my successful music career. It's all my mom's fault. It's all her fault. When she would force me to play in her recitals in front of probably around 40 kids and all their families, the stage fright in front of all those people was horrible. Remember, I'm a shy kid. It was horrible. I didn't even like playing for my own family at Christmas time, let alone this 
room full, this auditorium full of staring eyeballs. Now, looking back, I can see that this was part of the life training for me. Some of that shyness went away just because of the sheer regularity of being on stage. As I moved into my high school years, I overcompensated this timidity, and I started to hang out with older friends who did what I misguidedly called the older guy cool stuff. All they really did was get me into trouble, a lot of it. Now, they weren't super bad guys, but they definitely weren't leading me toward God. They were leading me in the other direction. But because I felt like I was coming out of my shell a little bit, I sowed some oats with these guys. Well, eventually, my musical ability allowed me to get into the music industry. And I mean deeply and quickly. I played in nightclubs before I was of drinking age. So I had to stay on the stage, you know, in between sets or, or sneak out the back door. At 19 years old, I was in studios recording music. I was arranging music for a syndicated musical variety TV show. I performed on that show in front of cameras. This was a big deal back in the 1800s. Okay, I'm not really that old. But it was uncommon at that age. The problem was that I had been thrown into a highly mature role way too soon. There's a Bible verse that's really applying to church leadership or positions in a church, but it, it applies for all of life. It says that a person getting into a ministry, getting into a position, must not be a new believer, lest the position go to his head and the devil trip him up. At Cornerstone, we've got to be careful about that. You know, just because somebody has a talent, you know, and they're fresh and full of zeal, doesn't mean you put them in there. You know, let some time go by, or else things can happen. In my case here, the money and the other perks of the entertainment industry were quickly getting their grip on me. You know, remember, I'm a bashful boy turned cool. I started to gain a false sense of confidence. Wow, with all this talent and the raving reviews, I just may have found the life I've been looking for. Well, playing in club bands and traveling around the country was the natural next step for a rock and roller like me, so off I went. Somehow, I was able to continue my education. Every time I'd come off the road, I'd squeeze in a semester. I was in college studying music ed. I was studying music education because I thought with all of my brilliant and profound understanding of this God called music, I could share that with others. It's very interesting that I never acquired the desire to teach music. Never did it. Well, that's when the drinking and the drugs were just too alluring. That's another thing that's amazing. With all those years of that, I never acquired an addiction. I never developed any kind of addiction to any of those substances. And I can only attribute that to God having his hand on me this whole time. Don't think God doesn't have his hand on people who don't believe in him. Eventually, I became bored with the shallowness and the 
just the ridiculousness of the clubs and the drinking and the lack of purpose. So I stopped the drinking, I stopped the drugging, and I went and got all philosophy guy type. And I joined the Church of Scientology. Oh, this ought to do it. I was getting myself in a bigger mess than I ever dreamed possible. I was searching so hard. Still, I was clueless why I couldn't find the answer. Now, something about Scientology is that they will take you through an exercise to define words that you misunderstand or don't know the definition of. And they do this to clear your mind of any hang-ups or any blockage that's in your brain. Amusingly, this backfired on them. Because you know what came up? I was brought up in the church. Right? I was brought up in an Episcopal church. And when every Sunday, you know, my mom made us go. And until I got in high school, I think I was probably around 16 when she gave me, my parents gave me the opportunity to decide. And boy, I was gone. No more church for me. So you can say instead of me being unchurched, I was de-churched. Well, these words that came up were church words like, and they were simple words, minister, pastor, shepherd, these kinds of words. And I, I just had a blockage there, the Scientologist said. So I, I got a better understanding of these negative thoughts I had about church. And looking back, can you see what happened? I was becoming a little more constructive in my thinking about church. I could see God's hand. Well, I didn't then, but I can see now God's hand was on me again. He was leading me down the path that ultimately was directing me to him. What a journey this was. I'm reminded of a story in the Old Testament about a guy named Joseph. His brothers hated him. They wanted to kill him. That's some pretty strong hate. Instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. He spent years and years and years of misery because of what they did. Well, then he just moved up the ladder, so to speak. And when he was on top of things, he had every chance that he needed to smush those brothers down, to take their heads off. Instead, he said, you planned something bad for me, but God produced something good from it. I love how that's worded in, in that translation. It, it didn't say God caused all this so good would come out of it. It said God produced something out of it. So Scientology was probably not thinking they were doing something evil to me, but they weren't leading me to God. They were leading me away from God. But God produced something good out of it with words about church. I got a little more interested in church, but nothing happened yet. Of course, I'm a skeptic. I can't go over that easy. Well, after a couple more years in this counterfeit life, I realized that the search wasn't panning out, and loneliness really took over. Loneliness was always there, but now it just went right in the front of things. Because of my platform with music, which now included international travel, I was in a band called Lobo, and we were in the spotlight, big concerts and all this stuff. Now I thought I could fill some of that void with relationships, especially the overnight kind. So 
I tried my best to never sleep alone. Now that I'm married and I've developed a habit of snoring, I guess it's just irony that I'm getting reacquainted with sleeping alone on the sofa. Some of you guys can relate. Well, I ended up in Los Angeles feeling about as low as I could get. I was playing in jazz clubs at night, working at a hardware store during the day, and there was this guy at the hardware store named Tony. Tony always talked to me about Jesus. Now, he got under my skin with the topic, but there was something about him that I liked. He just seemed like a nice guy. And I was honest with him. I didn't keep my mouth shut. I mean, I pushed back. I said, you know, it's kind of naive, maybe even stupid to believe in something just because it's written in a book. What's that? Didn't faze him in the least. He just kept being nice to me, talking about Jesus. When I was leaving to move back to Florida, he gave me this gift. I went back to the house to finish packing, and I opened the gift. It was a Bible, and it was a book by Billy Graham entitled, How to Be Born Again. Remember, I didn't know what this was all about. I never saw Tony again. I don't even know his last name. And I bet you Tony has no idea that he played a role in my story because there was something in there that stuck. You see, I didn't read a word then in either book, but a comforting feeling went through me as I looked at them. And outside the window was a bird. And that bird's voice was so clear, I thought the window was open. It wasn't. In the chirping was this strange, familiar, understandable message that was saying, David, everything will be all right. It was almost audible. Very weird. Very weird. Now, if I had known what was happening at the time, I would have recognized that there was a Bible verse being applied to me. Here it is. God's gifts and God's call are under full warranty, never canceled, never rescinded. I had a call on my life. I didn't even know it, and God was calling me. I can tell now, after the fact, way after the fact, but this is what was happening. Now for the climax. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and my search pretty much was at a dead end. I was doing a lot of studio work there. The Lobo Band was touring out of that city, and I just thought it was the life I would live forever. And I went back to Tampa for a visit, and I was in for a rude awakening. I didn't really understand until later, but when I walked in the house, I felt such a heavy, dark feeling. I mean, it, it was tangible. I already knew my stepmom was dabbling in spiritualist stuff, you know, like Ouija boards and uh, what is it, the automatic writing, you know, the spirits help you write, you know, weird stuff. I knew that, but something was very uncomfortable now. Along with that, I found out that my dad had developed cancer, bladder cancer, and while he was in the hospital, 
one of his two business partners went and withdrew all their capital out of the bank and skipped town. Because the third guy couldn't keep the business going while my dad was in the hospital, their company folded. Now understand, my dad was this tough guy. Cussed like a sailor, never cried. He was just a tough guy to me. And now he was carrying around a gun in his trunk in case he ran across the double-crossing partner. Well, even though all that was going on, I started to see my dad was battling with depression. He admitted it. I saw him crying. Very foreign to me. Well, I went back to Nashville, and I worried about my dad, but I didn't think much about all the weirdness that had happened. Just kind of blew that off. And I spent the next few months still wondering, where's my place in this world? Then I went back to Tampa for another visit. This time, everything was different. I mean everything. As I walked in the door, I remembered that heavy, dark feeling, and it wasn't there. Instead, there was a peacefulness about it, also tangible. In fact, the lighting in the house seemed brighter. I was going to ask them if they changed light bulbs. It literally felt brighter in there. That's when dad said what a lot of dads say to their kids. Son, let's have a talk. Sits me down on the couch. And he told me that his depression had gotten so bad, so terrible, that he sat on the end of the bed one night with my stepmom and told her, you know, I think you'd be a lot better off with me out of the picture. I'd be better, the whole world would be better off, he said, without me in the picture. Now, my stepmom had grown up in church, and she knew better than to consult spirits and play around with Ouija boards. So she said, you know what, Bill? We've tried everything but God. So she prayed right there. She asked God to forgive her for all her stuff. She rededicated her life to God, and she led my father in a prayer, a prayer to put his faith, his complete trust in God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then dad really got my attention. He said that the day after that prayer happened, he had to go to the doctor. It was going to be a checkup and to make plans for surgery about this cancer. The doctor told him the cancer was gone. This is my dad. This is like not a TV evangelist. My dad didn't even believe in this stuff. This was really getting my attention. I was on the edge of my seat thinking, what, where is this leading? After that, he said something just right for the skeptic that I was. It was the perfect thing. He said, David, let's say that there's one in a million chance that all this Bible, Christianity stuff is true. Just one in a million chance it's true. If it turns out that it's not true, then the worst I've done is try to live a good life. But if it is true and I don't believe it, 
don't you think I'd be in a heap of trouble? That was a strong question for me. Now comes the resolution of the story. It's all I needed to hear before, well, I couldn't even get my hand over my mouth in time, and these words came out. Since it's my birthday coming up here, why don't you guys get me a Bible? What did I just say? I couldn't believe that came out of my mouth. Didn't even remember that Tony gave me a Bible. That was long gone, years ago. You know what I just noticed the other day? Didn't even notice it till. I mean, this has been years ago. That was 1980. I just noticed. Why would God line this up with my birthday? Hmm. God's cool, isn't he? Isn't he? Okay, okay. Just want to make sure you're still awake. So they give me this Bible, and they gave me some cassette tapes of some teachings to listen to. So I, I go back up to Nashville. I read a little bit of that Bible. I listen to the tapes. And at the end of the tapes, this guy led me through a prayer to ask Jesus Christ to be my forgiver and my leader. So I did that. I had no idea what I did. I didn't have a clue. I didn't even know I needed to know I did what I did. Did you get that one? <laughs> I didn't have a clue. So once again, I go to visit in Tampa. And my stepmom asks me a question. Are you born again? What? I said, what's that? <laughs> Am I born again? I had never heard this phrase. It wasn't in the prayer. I didn't know what it meant. So she has her list of questions, her mental list. And she starts going down the list. And it, th these are some of the questions. Well, did you admit that you're a sinner, David, and you need salvation? I said, yeah, I remember hearing that on the tape. Yeah, I did that. She said, do you believe Jesus died for your sins on the cross? You know, you believe that? And I said, well, yeah. I'm still rolling around. I said, what's this born again thing? And then she asked, well... Do you believe he rose from the dead to prove that he is who he says he was? Yeah, I did that. And so she says, did you ask him to come into your life and be your leader? Well, yeah, I did that. She said, you believe all this stuff, huh? I said, yeah. And then she goes, well, then, dummy, you're born again. And that's when the light bulb clicked, and I was like, yeah, okay, I am born again. I like to tell that story to people because that's kind of where I'm at with ministry. I know that not everybody crosses the line of faith by walking an aisle, kneeling down, praying the prayer, the fireworks go off, and poof, it's done. For a lot of dummies like me, it's a process. It takes a while. Even after you do it, you don't understand what you did. So you need a little help. That's what discipleship is all about. Now the, the verse that we read at the beginning makes sense to me. It made sense if somebody said, you've been born again. And it's not a life that will end quickly. It's a life that will last forever. Now I get it. So it's time for the epilogue of the story, the conclusion. Because this is my story, but guess what? It's really not the end of the story. 
In fact, it never will end because it's an eternal story. In all likelihood, there are a few more chapters in my life right here. And that's part of the epilogue. But there's also a happy ever after part in heaven. And it goes on for eternity. Last week, Dan talked about God's faithfulness. And he said in that message that God saves us from and saves us out of, or out of and from, those two things, you know. And he does. This is very true. I want to take that one more step. I want us to realize that God doesn't stop when he saves us from hell or out of any other danger. God also saves us for something. He saves us for something. As the Bible says, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he always wanted us to live. Always for God is a long time. He's eternal this way and that way. So he's always wanted us to live a certain way, it says. And that's why he sent Christ to make us what we are. I don't know a whole lot about my future chapters, but I know this. I have the privilege of being used by my awesome, loving Father God. I have that privilege of being used. I will have that privilege as long as I allow him to pin the words and the sentences and the chapters of my life. Those are things he laid out before the foundation of the earth. Because in the end, it's really not my story. It's his story. None of this was my idea. It's all his idea. I tried my best to mess it up. But it's all his plan. All the credit for him rescuing me, it goes to him, not me. I get none, zero, zilch. It's all his. If you want to have a great story, and I don't care if you haven't crossed the line of faith yet or you have crossed it. If you want a great story, then quit trying to write your story. Be a part of the greatest story that's ever been told. That story is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. It's the cross that we should have been on. I didn't get real juicy with my story, but let me tell you, you can read between the lines, can't you? It's very juicy, and I hurt a lot of people. I hurt myself. I belong on that cross. I belong on that cross. And guess what? We all belong on that cross. And Jesus did it for us. So he could get us back to God. The God who we were always meant to be. Always meant to be with. He did it for us. He did it so we could spend eternity with him. In such a great place. Such a great setting to use a story term. It's so great that we'll never be able to imagine it until we arrive there. 
That's a story. That's a story. And if you will give your life over to God through faith in Jesus Christ, it can be part of all of our stories because we will all, all of his followers will end up in heaven together as one big, cool story. And we'll be praising God for eternity. We'll be raising the roof of heaven, giving him praise for what he, because you've got a story too. Some of yours may be juicier than mine. I doubt it. <laughs> so let me give an application. Maybe you could call this the moral to the story. I just said it, but here's the moral. Quit trying to write your own story. Give him the pen and paper. If you haven't been here, we just spent eight weeks in a series called Rethink God. That series was allowing God to paint a portrait of himself the way he wanted to be seen. Now let's allow him to paint a portrait or write a story the way he wants us to see ourselves. So I leave you with a question. Are you born again? Are you born again? Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, so much. What a story. What a story you have crafted. Talk about rising action and climax and resolution. Oh, my goodness. You've got the best story ever told. And you wrote us into that story. So I say thank you, God. Thank you so much. Because I know now, and I will continue to know forever, that you took something that wasn't so good and you made it glorious. Because you can make everything glorious. And I thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.